0: Sometimes you get lucky, and your game is an instant hit without investing in growth. For everyone else, there's IronSource. IronSource is a game tech company which builds technologies that helps you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super-efficient way. So, whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, Iron Source is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor Fund are giant fans of Iron Source because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So, we suggest that you head on to ironsource.com, that's ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. Hi everybody and welcome. Today we have myself, Joseph Kim, and the founder and current chairman of Demiurge Studios based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Al Reed. Demiurge is most famous as a developer behind the hit mobile game Marvel Puzzle Quest. Welcome, Al. It's great to have you on.
1: It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Joe.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and for those in our audience not already aware, Marvel Puzzle Quest was launched back in 2013 and has been going strong for over six years now, grossing over $100 million in life of product revenue. Demiurge has had a bit of a roller coaster history, and Al has successfully led the studio through both good and challenging times. So it was recently announced that Al acquired Demiurge, the studio he founded back from Sega recently. And so I wanted to take this rare opportunity to talk to Al about a lot of things, but one, The history of Demiurge, so the origin story, how it all started. Two, the story behind Marvel Puzzle Quest and what were the keys to success of that title. Three, selling Demiurge to Sega and now reacquiring the studio. Four, the biggest lessons learned over his career as an entrepreneur and as the head of a game studio. Fifth, what's next for Demiurge, Marvel Puzzle Quest, and for you personally, Al? And finally one of the things I remember from our time working together at Sega and Demiurge was, and I'm not even sure if you're going to remember this, but once you mentioned to me the importance of just sort of hanging on and that entrepreneurship always involves being sort of on the brink of survival. And in fact, you seem to allude to Demiurge having situations of that nature a few times, so it'd be great if we could explore that area, dig into that a bit, especially given the current time how do you deal with existential threats from the perspective of mindset and approach? And with so many people in our audience that may be dealing with whether it's layoffs or big impacts to their business and all the other stuff going on right now, it would be great to get your thoughts on managing through these kinds of times. And I know you've got a lot of great experience in that area. So with all that said, let's jump right in. I'd really love to start at the beginning in terms of the origin story. So who were you, and how did Demiurge begin at the very beginning?
1: Sure, so um, uh, Demiurge was founded by myself and two college buddies, um, more or less, right out of uh, of, um, University at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, We we didn't end up raising any money um, ever, um, but but certainly not in the early days, uh, and instead bootstrapped the business by um, looking for consulting work, um with with other companies so um, we built a couple of this was in the real arcade days It was a long time ago um, so we built a couple of um little um sort of arcadey games that went up on real arcade um and actually ended up getting connected we were you know being hobbyists that long ago um we were building mods for unreal and actually ended up getting hooked up with epic and um, building some software for them and doing a bunch of documentation work for the unreal engine um, that sort of led to us um, establishing a reputation in the business as Unreal Engine experts, and um, we were able to build a really wonderful sort of work-for-hire services business on the back of that expertise.
0: Now, during those early days, how did you guys actually get your first projects as kind of like recent college grads or, you know, <laughs> as college students? With these kinds of
1: projects, uh, by hook or by crook. Um, I mean, we uh, we we did have some industry connections um, uh, as a result of our time at CMU, uh, and so you know the early real arcade contracts actually came as a result of that, and the other work you know at the time, Epic. This was like. Epic was a pretty small organization, um, and uh, we, were, we were really heavily involved in the community of people that was building stuff for Unreal, so we got connected directly with them, uh, and they asked us to help. Awesome. So, kind of moving on to, like, the next, it seems like the next
0: big thing that happened for you guys was Marvel Puzzle Quest, and so,
1: I, <laughs> I remember hearing... There were about 15 years between those two
0: <laughs> so Okay, so so you guys were gradually building, kind of doing yep. projects, di- different projects, kind of building up experience, expertise, building out your team, mm-hmm. and then so in this case, I guess 15 years later, Marvel Puzzle Quest, and I remember hearing kind of the story, but can you can you talk to us about that story? So how did sure, Marvel sure. Puzzle Quest originally take off?
1: Yeah, so. Um, so, shortly before Marvel Puzzle Quest, um, when the iPhone came out, us, like many other studios, sort of orchestrated um, a strategic move to try and get to learn how to build games for phones, which was, you know, required a whole bunch of new skills. Um, and so, we found a couple partners, um, actually, Glue Mobile um, uh, and another company that uh, is, uh, and some work with NG MoCo, if you remember them. Yeah. Uh, And so we built a couple of um, premium apps, actually, because this was before free to play in the West had really caught on and sort of figured out how to do mobile development. Uh, And Marvel Puzzle Quest um, was a partnership between us, um, the publisher, um, a little outfit um, that's based in Japan, but has an office in Los Angeles called D3 uh, and Marvel uh, that that came about because D3 had a really great licensing business where they would build licensed product. Um, and the intent actually the Puzzle Quest brand goes back to the sort of Nintendo DS. I think there was a maybe an Xbox arcade, Xbox One arcade like very early on disc version of Puzzle Quest. Um, And uh, so we were actually in the very beginning, we started out building it as a premium title. Um, But but from the very, very beginning, I think we were much more interested in getting involved in mobile free-to-play. This was Puzzle and Dragons had landed in the US around this time. Uh, and uh, we realized, I think, between that and Clash of Clans, which is also just landing, uh, that free-to-play was the sort of obvious place sort of where the puck was going. Um, and so we worked with our publisher um, to pivot our focus away from console and PC and over to mobile, and in particular, mobile free-to-play. Um, and they were apprehensive but receptive to the change um it turned out to be the right decision for everybody of course uh and began focusing on building free-to-play the the thing that made mpq work for us some of it was right place right time but actually i think more than anything what we were doing was studying um the card battlers in japan um which were here they were the feature phone games in japan that were on smartphones here um, and trying to understand how they worked. And I think while other game developers, in particular traditional game developers, the console and PC world, were kind of looking down their noses at, they didn't understand these games. And they're like, these are terrible. They're, you know, I don't even think they understood how they monetized. I don't even know that they understood how much money they were making. We decided to learn them and realize that there, what, was, what happened there was there was just a cultural gap. And if you broke them down, you could really understand gotcha, which wasn't a thing here. Um, in, the, in the West yet, uh, and we decided to take those fundamental principles and apply them to, um, to the, this Puzzle Quest franchise and, and the Marvel franchise, um, and it worked. <laughs>
0: right. I, I remember
1: you- launch day, actually. Uh, we did a like really small, soft launch, um, but the budget was running out, so we had to go worldwide. Um, and I remember waking up, I think it went live on Thursday, And so Friday, people were playing. We had no idea what the numbers were going to be. I remember waking up Saturday morning, like running, like Christmas morning, running over to my computer, pulling up the analytics dashboard, which was primitive, but had the important numbers and seeing our D1 retention and realizing like at that moment, like oh my gosh, it worked. <laughs> uh, and sort of called all hands on deck at that point and immediately went into live operations mode um, as quickly as possible, which also wasn't a thing. Then people weren't doing events and live operations at the time, so. Right.
0: And now when you mentioned, yeah, you guys were kind of working on PC and console and then you guys kind of shifted to this new area in terms of iPhone and sort of mobile development, but that kind of seems like a big deal. Was that more, Was that an easy decision or or was, was it, you know, how- yeah. How did you uh, think through that that kind of shift in your business?
1: There, there are things that change, and to be frank, actually, if you play MPQ today, you can still see this. Um, There are lessons that we didn't learn that we we really needed to, in particular, in the areas of of UX, which I remember when we worked together, you uh, you jumped up (laughs) and down about um, uh, correctly. Um, uh, But actually, you know, fun is fun, and game making is game making, Uh, and so our I think our our sort of core gamer background and console background um, allowed us to carve out a pretty unique niche inside of the mobile game space Um, it was a hindrance to be clear in some cases right um because ux on console is not as important and you know very different than it is on mobile um but i would say like if you look at if you are to think about how much overlap there is in the craft and art and science of game making between mobile and console, I, I think like 70, 80% of it is overlap, um, And people, people don't realize that that 20% is unbelievably important. It's the difference between success and failure on each of the platforms. Yeah. Um, but, but the raw talent that you have to apply to it is not completely different.
0: Got it. But just in terms of like for entrepreneurs out there that are looking at their business and they see this new opportunity. And in terms of that decision making oh, framework I see. or thought process, like how do you think what advice would you give for them thinking about a new potential business opportunity?
1: Oh, interesting. So I, I think as a as a small developer, um uh like you you're gonna be more nimble than the, the big companies so like stick your nose in every little new piece of technology even if it's find a tiny little piece of work or like shave off one head to go tinker um, for a few months um, because I think you you, you you can try and speculate which platforms are going to take off and which ones aren't I think that's kind of a fool's game. Um, you're much better off sort of getting a little bit of expertise across the board so that when the opportunity to go big as it did with MPQ hits, you already have the experience under your belt, so you can move a little bit faster um, and sort of when you're looking for partners, you can can articulate your expertise on those platforms.
0: Got it, so you're kind of saying have a little bit of an experimental culture, so allocate some resources to new stuff, and to your point, the bigger guys likely won't be doing that and you can move a little bit faster into those new areas. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so kind of third area I wanted to talk about is, so you guys launched MPQ back in 2013, then you sold Demiurge to Sega in 2016. And can you fill in the gaps for us and talk through maybe the motivation to like work with Sega and, you know, what what was that timeframe like between 2013 and 2016 between
1: MPQ and Sega? Sure. So uh, when MPQ hit a little bit unexpectedly and this was a little bit, we we had thankfully planned ahead, I think, in the... uh, we, we'd watched the Zyngas of the world on Facebook who were sort of very very seriously architecting their engines for live operations. Um, that wasn't so much it certainly wasn't the case in the West um, for mobile games we'd sort of thankfully planned a little bit ahead there in terms of the architecture of the software and the architecture of the game itself so we were we were somewhat ready but I think we we immediately went into... Um, it was a scramble those those two years were all about taking this thing which had a like pretty good monetization engine and a pretty good um, retention engine uh, and then desperately trying to feed the beast as quick as we could um, and so most of those those intervening years were spent um, well the beginning of those intervening years was spent just like Trying to find our footing in a, you know, it was the first game that we'd operated live, and trying to figure that out. I think, you know, it, it actually we um we had in the sort of nine months leading up to the launch of MPQ, um, we'd had everybody at the office who was involved in product or UX or business um, read the Lean Startup, uh, and so a lot of it was about sort of applying those principles and sort of understanding that we were not the arbiters of quality our customers were and the only way we were going to be able to deliver what they wanted to get them to stick around was by listening to them and so we we had fortunately built you know analytics which was novel at the time um we had um we had architected the systems for live operations um and we'd had this sort of mvp attitude mpq was pretty i mean it's still it's an antique now, um, but, uh, but it, was, it was super rough when it first launched. Um, so we, we just had to, you know, to some extent, finish the game that we'd started. Um, once, we got, once things had stabilized, um, we began looking at how we were going to apply that model, um, the, the Match 3 RPG engine that we had built, both from a technology standpoint and a design standpoint to other games. Um, and started looking to form partnerships with um, other publishers. And Sega was interested in a more serious partnership, uh, and one thing led to another, and we ended up being acquired. at At the time, if you had a successful mobile product and we were in the top fifty grossing, um, like the amount of inbound interest that generated was um, amazing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, great. And then between that time, so uh, you know, after the acquisition of Sega to this point today, you know, I, I I know there's been a few things that ha- happened. You mm-hmm. kind of left to, and moved, and then you kind of came back and reacquired the studio. Can you fill us in terms of that gap?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, the the beginning of the relationship with Sega was um, all about uh, trying to figure out how to take this um, this skill set in live operations and this match three RPG engine and apply it to things that Sega was Sega had and its. Um, Cash of uh, of intellectual property. I guess right before that, we'd actually we had an original game in development um, that uh, we ended up launching. Seg acquired the studio. We launched it uh, six months later. That was sort of MPQ, but an original IP. We very quickly learned original IP is not you know, that. This was when UA budgets were going through the roof and licenses were dominating the App Store, um, and we very it was just impossible to cut through the noise. Um, And so we sunset that game and began looking at how we were going to build games using using the SEGA IP and our live ops expertise. Um, And so we collaborated on a number of things. I ended up um, deciding to take some time outside of video games personally. I uh, did a did a stint in automotive e-commerce uh, a stint in um, uh, reg tech of all things this is oh. um, financial services regulatory technology <laughs> um, but uh, you know Sega obviously is sort of strategically making some changes in the West um, and um, began looking for a way to place the studio with another partner um, coronavirus happened, and the other partners went away, and they called me up, and here we are.
0: Great. And so it's, it's been a really interesting history that you described, but looking back on all this in terms of the, the history, the successes and challenges, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons that you've
1: learned if you were to
0: think about, let's, let's say, the top two three lessons from your background and history with Demiurge and MPQ,
1: Sure. Um, well, I think lessons one through five are talent is everything. (laughs) Um, uh, you know, this is a, this is a talent driven business, um, who you hire and, and how effectively you get those people to collaborate is all that matters. It solves every other problem. Uh, and I, I. People pay that a lot of lip service, I think, in general, because it sounds good and it's a good way to motivate your team. But in games, in particular, I I think it is absolutely true because um, there's no um, there is no room for um, for you know any anything that is you're, you're th- this business is wildly competitive, and so there's there's simply no room for any like you know 85 percent quality or delivery you have to be able to do everything incredibly well um and so i think the sort of other lessons fall out of talent um uh one of them is you know we're going to talk about when i talk about survival a little bit i think some of that is as an independent studio uh, in particular an independent bootstrap studio uh you need to Architect your deals to be fair and sort of enable you to um, manage the business through times where publishers are, you know, looking to um, uh, scuttle external development. Um, uh, that That's incredibly important. Uh, I'm trying to think of lessons. So, lesson one talent is everything, lesson two. Um, uh, make sure your deals are fair, <laughs> which, uh, it, you know, oftentimes de- developers sometimes get sort of starry-eyed uh, about who they're going to work with and forget that, though you know, they have something of value, in particular if they have talent. Uh, let's see. Lesson three. Um well, Al, maybe
0: I could ask you a question because I sure. you know, one of the things that I noticed um, while working at Demiurge is just what I felt was a kind of unique but very strong culture in terms of, like, the love that the people at the studio had for one another mm-hmm. and just yeah. in terms of, the like, camaraderie there. So maybe could you speak yeah. to that? Like, how did you foster that kind of, oh, sure. that, yep. you know, such a strong sort of, you know, brotherhood or
1: family, <laughs> family feeling? You know? Brother and sisterhood, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, right. So uh some of it's talent, right? Like um when you find the people that you can build teams around and and that and then the teams that get built around them, you have to hang on to there's there's sort of two parts to retaining employees. One is making sure you've planned for the lean times. Um, but I actually think more important than that is um being passionate about the little things of culture. Um, it's really, really easy, I think, to let little cultural problems persist. And and it's like, I honestly think it's sometimes like really little things, like your policy on whether you're gonna supply soda to the team <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, carefully considering whether people are getting too much email or not, um, whether people are attending spending too much time in meetings or not. like. Listening, it, 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 when when an employee expresses a desire to make your company better in some way, because they think there should be fewer meetings, or they think the soda machine should have Dr Pepper, which of course it should, um, uh, you have to you have to listen and respond to that, and. And, you know, you do that a few times and you end up with this incredibly strong culture with where people are invested in the success of the company and it makes it very easy for the company to invest in the success of the people.
0: Got it. So, yeah, maybe we can now start talking about the future of Demiurge, given that we've got the context to today. So today, you're now chairman of Demiurge. Mm -hmm. Bart Simon is the new CEO. Congrats to Bart. Uh, Basically, I assume it's the similar role for him as GM, but- What does that mean for you in terms of your role and how involved sure, sure. you are?
1: Sure. Um, so uh, Bart has been with Demiurge. I think it's got to be coming up on a decade now, uh, and uh, he um, he's been re- he was running the design department for a very long time. Um, and when I left Sega slash Demiurge, um, he was the obvious. Uh, the obvious choice to take over the reins of the studio um, and it has gone incredibly well um, and part of when you're sort of orchestrating a, uh, a corporate restructuring as this was um, like if it ain't broke don't fix it and Bart is like a phenomenal leader he's got a great uh, really keen eye for games and he's the kind of operator that you really want running a, a services business Um, Cares about the people, understands understands games, understands the mechanics of how they get made. Um, My role is um, is going to be helping Bart out where I can on the strategy side and on business development. Um, I'll probably do a bunch of recruiting too, uh, which um, which I enjoy uh, because growing talent is everything. So (laughs) you spend a lot of time on making sure you find and attract the right people. Um, But that's that's the plan right now. I mean, to be honest, um, this all came together very very quickly, and so we're still figuring it out. Um, I mean, that's the nature of games to begin with. You're always building the airplane while you're flying it.
0: Got it. And so when you decided to reacquire Demiurge, uh, did you have a specific kind of strategy in mind in terms of what you're gonna do? Uh, Could you talk about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think um, Demiurge is very uniquely positioned because the studio has participated in Um, really high-end console and PC product um, and has operated games as a service and understands how mobile works. And I think we're trying to figure out where the puck is going right now. And while there's many pucks, but one of them is definitely flying towards um, the, the convergence of business models that exist in mobile back to console and PC. And some of that you see in like Platform parody, right? Nobody would if you asked you or me four years ago uh, whether Fortnite was a good idea for mobile. We both would have said no. That's a terrible idea. Do not try to build a progressionless shooter parody with console. Like that's a bad idea. Obviously, it's working, Um, and I think that's actually started to repeat itself with PUBG and with um, Call of Duty. Uh, And I think you're going to see you're going to see some more of that. I think you're going to see um, uh, business models that are effective at optimizing that experience that exist in you know, what is now traditional mobile free-to-play start to find their way back the other direction up into console. I'm going to see some of this happening with, with Destiny. Um, you need to get bigger scale, um, which is tricky on console. But Demiurge is really uniquely positioned to sort of play at the convergence of all of that because we know how to build AAA content, work with these huge brands. We understand games as service and live operations. So the that that's where we're going to work. The the first. 18 months to two years of that is going to be focused on getting back to our services roots where we build a really wonderful work for hire business that we ran for 15 years, It was super profitable. um, And was a great way to grow a team. And so for the next couple of years, that's going to be our focus is finding partners who need help playing at the convergence of, of mobile and console.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I have personally seen a lot of interest on free to play for HD, and there there does seem to be a lot of interest there. So I,
1: HD is that what they call it now? They that's calling, good yeah, to know. they're calling it
0: HD now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Console and PC is the only thing I know. So, <laughs> all
0: right, great. So, the, kind of the last section I wanted to end end on is just this topic of survival. So, uh, let's talk survival and overcoming obstacles and challenges and uh, going back, can you walk us through some of the biggest challenges that you faced as an executive or entrepreneur, wh- whether it's with Demiurge as a studio or with MPQ as a game, but what was the challenge and how did
1: you overcome it? Yeah. Um, I think that uh, to be clear, actually, Demiurge ran a remarkably stable business as an independent studio for the 15 years that we were independent. Um, yeah. I think in my in my career um, or in Demiurge's lifetime, um, the number of people we've had to let go for business reasons is in the very low double digits. Um, the, the reason for that and the reason we are sort of survivors, I guess, as you put it, um, uh, is, oh, it comes back to talent, right? Like, um, if you, if you have an amazing team that will always, always, always be in demand. Um, I don't, I, I think if you talk to every major publisher and every every large developer, they will they that, that is finding success. They will tell you their bottleneck is is getting really great people to work on their games. So as long as you have that, everything else tends to follow. Um, there were certainly lean times. Um, there were unglamorous projects that we ended up <laughs> taking. Um, so part of it is like don't look down your nose at the weird little XBLA title that might turn into a you know 150 million dollar mobile hit. Um, part of it, uh, is architecting deals that are truly fair to, to both sides. Um, you know, as a, as a, as a services provider, you're the first one to get cut. Um, and so that means you need a like the very fine point pen on your, you know, your termination clauses. Um, there's a bunch of, there's a couple like rules of thumb there. Um, we apply, we won't finance other companies development. So, um, we, we expect that. Um, from the very beginning of the deal, we're in the black. Um, that's a, that's been a hard and fast rule. So we don't want to get into a situation where we work for a month, hit the first milestone, then it's net 30, and suddenly you've just financed your partner's development for 60 days. And if they go under or run into financial distress, which has happened to us a couple of times, um, you're left with 60 days of payroll that you have to eat, um, and that can be that can be a big strain on a small studio. Um, so we, we pay very, very close attention to the financial terms of our deals and, uh, and the, the, way, the way payment flows.
0: Got it. So it kind of sounds like if I were to summarize some of the things that you've been talking about to survive challenging times, it kind of seems like what you're saying is you have to be kind of proactive and be, pre- be prepared. So one, kind of thinking in terms of the long term, you want to treat your employees right, get the right talent, you know, build that strong culture. Two, you want to be very cautious with, with respect to preparing for lean time, so having like some cushion, things of that nature. Three, the deals that you structure, make sure that they're structured in a way so that you're not in a bad financial position or right. that your partner can't put you in a position where you're going to be financially at risk. Yep. And finally, uh, the other thing is you know, to be humble in <laughs> you know, some of these yeah. projects that might sound a little bit crazy may actually wind up being... Pretty good projects or businesses.
1: So. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, the like the pithy summary is the way you survive the lean times is to perform sharply when business is great. Right, got it. Um, so that's what we did. Okay, and talking
0: more specifically to the time we're living in now, would you have some advice for some of the people out there that are facing challenging situations, whether it's due to a
1: layoff or? Yeah some kind of existential threat to their business? I mean, I, I will say I've, I've had a lot of phone calls the past couple of weeks, and I have yet to talk to a game developer or publisher that feels their business is being challenged right now. Um, right. That, like an operating, raising money seems right. incredibly difficult, but if you, if you have uh, an existing deal, like people are playing video games, people are spending money in video games, recessions right. are notoriously strong for entertainment. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're in my, my place where we're trying to build a services business, um, new console generations are really, really good for work for hire studios because the large publishers are making R&D investments. There's sort of more money flowing into our space. And then, you know, everybody's a little bit late in their development right now. Um, and it's nice to be able to, it's, that's a fun phone call when they say, oh my gosh, we're a month late. And if we had 10 more people. Who are super talented? We could drop onto our team and fix our schedule. That would be a dream come true. I'm like, that's wonderful as a developer to get to be the savior. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's a lot of fun. Um, we're we're talking to a couple of folks about that right now. Um, what was I going to say? The um, uh, so I think I, I I think sort of modulo corono as we've been saying around the office, um, the games business is is pretty strong. The um, uh, I Culture, what I was saying about sort of attracting and retaining talent and distributed, the last team I ran was a distributed team outside of games. Um, culture is uh, a very different beast when you're not sitting in the office together. Right. Um, uh, and so I, I think I would urge companies to take remote work really, really seriously. Read the literature about how you build strong distributed cultures. Um, uh, there's, there's a lot out there now. Uh, and spend the time to do that right um, rather than uh, taking this as a like, well, we're just going to bungle along for a few months and this too shall pass. I think it's worth the effort now to invest in tools and technology and practices um, that let you have a really strong distributed culture. And that will pay dividends when all this passes and you're able to recruit people or partner better with outsourcers um, when you're back in the office.
0: Got it. All right. Well, Al, thanks so much for your time. And you. sort of in conclusion here, do you have any message for our audience? Or sounds like business is great for you guys. But is there <laughs> anything specifically that Demiurge is looking for right now?
1: Yeah, business business is great. Uh, we are we are um, in the process of pivoting the studio from you know internal R and D shop to independent studio. We are we do have a, a team that's rolling off, and um, we're excited to try and apply that um, with a, with a partner. So. You're welcome to email me. I'm happy to chat. Um, if you need help on your game, it's just Al, A-L, at Demiurge Studios.
0: All right, awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Al. Thanks, Joe. This is fun. All right, bye.